Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. Hi, everyone. My name is Christian Allen. Here with me, as always, is Rodney the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's up, man? Hey, I'm great. I'm glad to be here. And I'm glad to announce to everybody that it finally happened. What? You got married. <laughs> yes, I did get married. And by the way, I just listened to the episode that you did. Or not, well, I say just listened to. It's been a while. But I just listened to the episode that you did with Adam while I was gone. Adam mm-hmm. Carroll, was a, yeah. which was fantastic, by the way. And um, you were kind enough to give the update. So with that being the context, I feel like maybe I should just add to the update. So really quick, we got uh, Heather and I got married on June 12th. So it's actually been like two weeks now. Yeah. Two weeks and a couple days. And we got married at this beautiful beach on Maui. Um, and it was really like a simple and amazing wedding. Like it was like a a genuine Hawaiian culture type wedding. And yeah. anyway, it was really cool. So, so intimate, fun. Um, and then from there, we just hung out there and vacationed for 10 days and did all sorts of cool things. Got, I got up close and personal with the turtle. I was really excited about that. It was a yes. big old turtle too. Sea turtle. Yeah. Yeah. Big old sea turtle. So anyway, I won't bore everybody with all of the, the adventures we had, but yep. I am a married man. So excited to, to continue from here. Yeah, and after they got back, they they threw a really cool party in in uh, their backyard. And oh yeah, was, and that was fun that was too. Fun. That was, was fun. Awesome. Thanks for coming, Rod. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So oh, I told you I'd be to your wedding, and then I wasn't invited to the actual ceremony, true. so I just did the best I could. You weren't <laughs> not invited. To be fair, you just weren't invited, Rod. Yeah. Yeah. Although, who goes to a wedding that they like just haven't been uninvited to? I have to tell you, I considered it, but I just <laughs> well uh, decided okay. against it. I wouldn't, I mean, we wouldn't have turned you guys away. So let's just say that. That's great. Okay. So Rod, today we're going to be talking about, we're going to be doing our Capital Avalanche deep dive. Yes. Um, And obviously the reason we call it a deep dive is to compare and contrast it with the episode, episode 45, which we called the Capital Avalanche Unveiled. So that one was kind of a high level overview, you know, get a basic understanding of the concepts. And today we would like to expound upon those things and dig a little bit deeper, get into the nuts and bolts of what actually makes the concept tick and move. Uh, And that way uh, people, as they're evaluating, right, whether it's a strategy that makes sense, like this can be another, we hope it can be another educational resource to, you know, get as much information about it as possible to make uh, good decisions. So is that a fair opener for that? Yes. Uh, one thing I would add is we, we will be touching on some of those details that we hit in the, uh, in the episode 45, but I would suggest mm, yeah. if you haven't heard that one, go, go listen to that one as a, as a starting point, get a little foundational uh, understanding there and then come back. And I think the deep dive will mean more to you if you do that. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. So without further ado, Rob, let's just jump into it. Sweet. Um, we're going to start with talking about the key benefits. I, I always like to talk about the key benefits because I, I just figure that's kind of what I'm most interested in. So mm-hmm. I assume that other people are. We're going to focus on those. 
And then what we'll do is we'll unwrap how we actually got to those benefits. Okay. I like it. Okay. So key benefits. Number one, Rod is a predictable double digit return. Now that's a pretty big promise or mm -hmm. I shouldn't say it's a promise. That's a pretty big statement that we're going to suggest that this is a place where we, we genuinely believe you can get double digit or consistent double digit returns. So um, talk about why we would make that statement. Well, it, it, it just comes into the numbers and we'll get into to this idea of spread quite a bit. We did that in the first one. We're going to do that a lot more today. Really, it's just a matter of understanding how the different pieces work and how they interact with each other to create that. And just to be clear, when we get in and talk about using whole life insurance and index universal life insurance, we're not suggesting that we're creating a double digit return solely from those vehicles mm, Yeah, because we're important. not. What we're they suggesting won't. is we're going to create, based on where things are today, we're projecting about a 5% return inside of those vehicles. It's the leverage and the spread and the arbitrage that amplify that to get us to the point where we, where we really do believe that that predictable double digit return is, is just, it's there. It just, it just works. Yeah. One of the things that we're hoping to do moving forward as we work with people is create, um, an output or as we're kind of walking through and talking about the different possibilities that it could, could exist, we're talking about having kind of our worst case scenario, which we're going to get into stress tests, right? Mm -hmm. A yep. stress tested situation that's, you know, like the great depression, something that's, mm -hmm. you know, historically we haven't seen anything as bad as that. Um, but then we want to get into kind of a current, a current. So, Let's just talk about what it looks like if interest rates continue similar to where they are today mm -hmm. and our return comes out similar right now. Yep. There's, we're going to talk about the how those things actually flow together, but let's just say theoretically that they stay the way that they are today. And then we're, of course, going to give a an example that shows what it's looked like historically, where we do at least have the 2% spread. Yep. And so what's nice is as we go through all of those, I think, Rod, that that will give people... Um, pretty good context of what it'll look like regardless of the situation and, and understand probably better what their risk profile is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, that's the first one. The, the bottom line as it relates to the double digit returns is we believe it can get there because of the math, mm -hmm. the arbitrage, the leverage, the math, those kind of things come together to create this double digit return that we believe is genuinely um, a conservative thing to expect. Okay, so the second thing, uh, second key benefit is maximum tax-free income. And we talked about this in our in our unveiling and kind of why we're using the word maximum tax-free income, Rod, but maybe you should expand on that. There are a lot of different things that we do that lead toward income. So for example, inside of the retirement accelerator, for example, that obviously is very much driven toward future tax-free income. Even inside of the investment optimizer, when someone gets past the point where they're using it for their investing, they're slowing down on their investing, they're they're entering the stage of retirement. I'm using air yep. quotes because most of our clients don't think of retirement the same way as most Americans do. But again, this place where they're now turning the investments that they've that they've created into this flow of, of income for retirement, even that investment optimizer policy can be used as a stream of tax-free income. Okay, so it's not th this this capital avalanche is not the only 
source of tax-free income that we're creating, but we're saying it's maximum tax-free income. It just is creating the most income of any of the strategies that we use and have talked about in the past. Yes, yes. And that's that is super important. And and specifically as we kind of compare it to the retirement accelerator. Now, mm -hmm. I do want to clarify the primary driver as to why the retirement accelerator over the long run may not produce quite as much cash as the capital avalanche. And it really has to do with the amount of leverage, right? In the yeah. retirement accelerator, we know very clearly that we're putting in for five years, the bank's putting in the same, basically the same amount for five, and then they're, they're taking over from there for the next five. So you have 10 years of funding. We put in 25 to 30%. They put in um, 70 to 75%. Yeah. And that's it. And then it's done, right? We have a definitive time frame. What makes the capital avalanche so unique is that each and every year we're going to be re-upping or can have the opportunity to re-up our cash value line of credit and increase the amount of leverage that we're utilizing. And so by nature of being able to go longer than 10 years, it just naturally creates more capital, right? So if I yeah. do it for say 30 or 40 years, it's going to create significantly more income than what we can get from the retirement accelerator directly related to, and specifically because of the amount of money, the amount of funding that's gone into it. And it'll depend on how much you decide to put in. If you put in just one year, then yep. the example you just gave could be a 30 or 40 to one of leverage. Or, or back to the percentages, that's basically like 3% out of pocket, the other 97% yes. uh, financed. So, One of the nice thing is, is it's super flexible. So when we get yes. to the capital avalanche, we can put money in for a year, we could put money in for a few years, we could determine that we're going to put a portion in ongoingly and, and, and have the bank put in the other portion. Like, it's just super flexible and there's not a definitive, again, not a definitive time frame. It's open-ended, which means I could do something in that world for the next 30, 40 years, as long as I live. Absolutely. So it's pretty wild. Okay. But we'll get in, we'll get into those details a little bit more. So first we talked about uh, predictable double digit returns. Now we've hit on maximum tax-free income. Talk a little bit about the liquidity and checkbook access. This is one of the things that differentiates it from not just the retirement accelerator, but but really any other form of premium finance that we've talked about before is from day one, you have access and liquidity. To the extent that you continue to put money in, you'll have more liquidity. To the extent that you finance more, you may have less liquidity, but the point is that you always have some level of liquidity. And and this gets important in, in some of the examples that we've shown in the webinar in, in the past podcast about people who use lazy money, they have, they have emergency fund business reserves sitting around and it's not really doing anything for them other than acting as that liquidity, which is important, but that's why it's there. We can incorporate that into something like this, where it still retains the majority of its liquidity and begins to create those double digit returns. Yeah. One of the things that we love about the concept is that there's always a net equity that exists inside yep. of it. We're going to talk a little bit about what creates that net equity and what would drive it up or up or down. We, we're, we're talking about it to some extent now um, based on how much money we put in. But one of the benefits is to know that I have some control over that and I always have liquidity, right? I always have some yeah. level of liquidity. 
And that's super important, especially if we're talking about this next point, which is which is to put inactive or lazy money to work. Well, if that's the case, then I need to have access to that lazy money, right? Mm -hmm. So how does the capital avalanche put lazy money to work and still make sure that I that I maintain this checkbook access and liquidity? Yes, the it's the leverage is what allows it to create more benefit for you in conjunction with the the life insurance policies that that's producing the underlying return that then we're lever levering up to to create these double digit returns uh, but because of that initial amount going in being from you from the individual out of pocket we have from day one are creating a, a level of liquidity and and generally speaking it's going to be in the 70 to 80 percent range of what you've initially put in that you have access to from day one so it it's just the pieces like you said it's kind of part of this idea that that we're when you take the the specific strategic pieces that we're putting in place to do this well one of them because we're using this cash value life insurance uh, type of policy and because of the way we design these policies, we're able to create that access and liquidity from day one. Okay, so that's important. We've talked about predictable double-digit returns, maximum tax-free income, checkbook access and liquidity, and uh, and now we've talked about how we're kind of putting that lazy money or that inactive money to work. Yep. Okay, a couple other final benefits that we want to hit on. One is that it's a it's significant from an estate liquidity perspective, right? And of course, the reason for that is because we continue to add or contribute to the policy through the bank, right? Mm -hmm. So as we continue to do that, even though our initial focus hasn't been and isn't life insurance death benefit, the nature of continuing to fund the policy continues to drive up that death benefit. So even if I didn't want to, I'm going to have an awfully significant um, death benefit, even if I've used a significant amount of the actual cash for income or other things. Yes. Okay. So finally, the last thing is that it is, and this is kind of my favorite thing to talk about, Optimal leverage with no outside collateral. And the reason I love talking about this is because this outside collateral thing has been kind of a foreign concept to the people that we work with. Because mm -hmm. most of the people we work with are high income earners, but are active in real estate investing and other things like that. So the idea of having a bunch of money sitting anywhere um, that's not doing much or, or, or I guess where most people would have it is in the market, right? So- yeah. Our experience is that most of our clients, if they have money, market money, it's normally in qualified plans. And obviously the challenge for us is we can't use qualified plans as outside collateral, right? Yep. Um, so now we have a situation where it's a lot easier for people to get their head around how to use this premium finance because they don't ever have to have a situation where it requires outside money that's just sitting in the bank or money that's um, sitting in a market-based account, they can just make the decision upfront, I'm gonna make this contribution, and then I can decide from there on out how much I wanna do ongoingly. And I think that for most people is really impactful, but what it does is it creates a situation where we have a safer, a safer and more conservative premium finance design, 
And we believe based on all of our due diligence that it's actually a lot more effective. And the reason for that is because of the open-ended opportunity for leverage. So we start with that safe element of us putting the initial contribution in, and then we get to add to add to it that we have the flexibility to really take as much or as little leverage as we want ongoingly. And for that reason, yeah. it creates this for each person, the optimal leverage with no outside collateral. And all of this dovetails in with what we were talking about earlier with the liquidity. It's the same the, the same reason we don't need to post a collateral, meaning because we always have more cash value in our in our policies than the loan balance we're, we're carrying, then not only do we uh, not not only do we have this liquidity we talked about, but there's no reason, there's no uh, need for any outside collateral to come into the picture. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, Rod. Well, that uh, I think that covers it. That's our deep dive. Sweet. <laughs> no, just kidding. Those are just the benefits. We are just getting started. So let's jump into the meat of it. Should we? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to talk about how it's different from our, from the other strategies that we teach people. And, and just for some context, as a reminder, our primary strategies are the investment optimizer, capital avalanche, and the retirement accelerator. Um, we we did use well uh, was wealth maximizer. We used as kind of our our more traditional premium finance design, but we've more or less replaced that completely to where we're we're moving more in favor of using capital avalanche. Just because again, it for all the reasons that we're going to talk about, we'll get into yeah. that. Okay, yeah. so with that being the case, Rod. Um, Let's talk about how it's different from our other strategies. Number one, first and foremost, and this is coming directly from Rod, it is a much, much cooler name. It is. There's just no getting away from it. Okay, so the other ones kind of describe what they what they do like relatively yeah. easily. And and actually, once you understand Capital Avalanche, it describes what it does really well too. Yeah. But no question, Rod, with that, there's there is no facetiousness when I say it is a much, much cooler name. <laughs> Yeah, just picture loads of cash piling piling down the mountain and landing at your feet. Yeah, that's pretty great. Okay, you're right, Rod. Uh, so absolutely. Number one is it's a much cooler name. Number two, or B, Rod, yep. how does it compare with the investment optimizer? And and here's some con why would we even compare it with the investment optimizer? They're not the same, Rod. One of them yeah. doesn't even use outside leverage. Or does yeah, it? And, okay, and we're asked talk to this us about it. Yeah, we're asked this a lot. Well, okay, so what's the difference? It, it, a lot of it's from clients who are using, so they're very familiar with the investment optimizer that becomes maybe a starting point for them. Mm -hmm. And so just as a really quick uh, synopsis, with the investment optimizer, we're using a highly overfunded life insurance policy as the vehicle, the opportunity fund from which we go out and invest. We have clients investing in real estate, businesses, crypto, uh, all kinds of different things where they build up a cash value inside of this life insurance policy. When they're ready to go invest, they're not taking the money out of the account. They're loaning against that and taking that loaned money, using that to invest. Their money stays in, in the investment optimizer policy, continues to grow and compound while they're out there creating cool returns in other places. It literally is, is creating value in two places at the same time. The biggest difference between the two 
is that the investment optimizer is for money that you want to be actively investing in the, all these things that we've talked about. So if you have a business, you, you like to invest in real estate, you will continue to do that. The investment optimizer is the right place for those dollars. Now, what's interesting is when we start up a new capital avalanche policy, it actually looks an awful lot like, it looks exactly like the investment optimizer policy in the sense that it's maximum overfunded. So the design of the policy itself is the same. You're putting all of the initial money into it. We set up a cash value line of credit, which a lot of people use with their investment optimizer. You can use the insurance company's loans, and that's totally legit, but you can also go out and get a, a loan, a set of a line of credit with a bank to, to access the funds when, when you're out there investing. So up to that point, they actually look the same. And to the extent someone plans to continue funding, we often talk about a one-year uh, funding, but they, you can obviously fund for longer than that to the extent you want additional liquidity or whatever. Uh, and as you do that, it really looks like the investment optimizer until when we start using the financing, not, not just within it, like, like I just described with the investment optimizer, but we're using financing to actually fund the policy, actually get new money into the policy. That's when we begin, begin to differentiate it. Now it starts to look a little more like the retirement accelerator. And yet we'll get into the, into a, here in a minute, what, what's different uh, on that side. Um, so just to maybe recap, to the extent that you put more money into the policy, you create more liquidity, similar to investment optimizer. And maybe more importantly, the reason why someone might do that is because we can create income sooner. The more they put in out of pocket, the sooner we can create income compared to the amount of financing that we take and, and fund through the bank loan. Okay. So, but the primary, if, if you're just going to put it in like a uh, two sentences, the primary difference is utilizing bank money to fund premiums. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yep. I'm with you. All right. I'm acting like I don't know it, Rod. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. you, you got it. I, I have some, it. I mean, I may have like studied the test before, so I have, <laughs> I have a pretty good idea, but uh, anyway. Okay. So Rod, how is it different from are more traditional premium finance designs. Okay, for traditional premium finance, we, we mentioned a minute ago, there's no outside collateral. It's all self-contained. And in, in a sense, that's that's similar to Retirement Accelerator. So it kind of puts the two, Capital Avalanche and Retirement Accelerator, in, in the same camp. Um, but, but now the way that it's different from even the Retirement Accelerator is that it can be funded, if someone wanted to, with a single lump sum contribution. We've talked about how you could fund for multiple years, but mm -hmm. a lot of people will just do the the single lump sum and then decide to finance everything after that. Yeah, and that is that is incredibly unique and different, right? It, Absolutely. And it's one of the things that makes the concept initially more conservative. Mm -hmm. And it's also one of the things or the thing that allows us the ability to utilize higher long-term leverage right? Because yep. we've created the net equity on the front end. It allows us all the flexibility to continue to do it really in whatever way fits our risk profile. Yep. And for the same things that you just talked about, now our third point is, is that we have some access to the cash value or to the line of credit, this, this net equity we've talked about, uh, which then, then now differentiates it from all other premium finance we've done, including retirement accelerator that liquidity. Okay, so I really should have said as we were going into this point, how is it different from both traditional premium finance 
and the retirement accelerator. Cause yeah. really, you know, we're, we're kind of, like you said, we're putting those into the same camp. Yeah. Uh, okay. So did we hit on everything as it relates to the prime, those differences between that, or is there anything else we need to hit on? A, a couple last things. The one is that we can use different product types. Anyone who has yeah, gone down the road with us with retirement accelerator or traditional premium finance, we always just used in index universal life as the vehicle inside of the capital avalanche strategy. We are using both whole life and index universal life. The difference being the, the whole life just adds an, an element of stability and predictability. We know every year we're going to get growth inside of that, that policy. There's the guaranteed interest. And even the dividend, right? It's not guaranteed, but but the companies have just been so consistent at paying a dividend. Uh, whereas on the IUL, when you spread it over a long period of time, we're, we have confidence in you know per, what we can expect. But even on a year-to-year basis, on the whole life side, we can have that predictability, whereas on the IUL, there's less predictability. So here, oh. here's at the end of the day, here's the way we suggest it. Anyone who wants more stability, predictability, consistency may lean more toward the whole life. People who want to take advantage of the higher upside potential of IUL will lean more toward IUL. I think a lot of people, would they just end up doing 50-50, half and half. Okay, Rod. So what you're saying there, I think, is super important because it would suggest then that it's not definitive. In other words, I can make that decision. I can determine whether determine whether I want to go more IUL or more whole life or mm-hmm. completely one way or the other. And yep. that is significantly different because when you think about how we use the investment optimizer, while while we obviously don't force people to go with whole life instead of IUL, that's just what we recommend, mm-hmm. right? So 97% of our clients who are using uh, the investment optimizer are using traditional max overfunded whole life. And then as we go to the other side, we talk about the retirement accelerator, in that design, it's really meant to be completely index universal life. So yeah. anybody that's gone there has been all on the IUL side. So again, one of the things that makes us unique here is that the capital avalanche is bringing in a lot of the, the benefits and a lot of the flexibility, a lot more flexibility than we get in some of our traditional stuff, allowing us to, from our perspective, kind of bring in the bo- the best of both worlds. Absolutely. Okay, and then and then one last point on this is the we're going to call it never-ending funding, that, like the never-ending story, except yeah, never-ending never funding. That just that probably just dated me. There's going to be people who are like, "What is that?" <laughs> um, hopefully, there's at least a few of you that start singing the never-ending story. There well, are definitely along people with it's, us. It's going through their minds right now. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so never-ending funding, Rod, and we've alluded to this several times, but talk about it. We believe that the design supports continuing to fund to continuing to finance premiums funding beyond. So most of the time we show a 10 have shown a 10% uh, design in, in the premium finance world. In this case, we're just saying, Hey, let's just keep going with it. Let's keep fi- financing. We have, we'll continue to have this positive net equity position forever. And so there's no reason to not, continue to fund because that means that we'll just be able to create more income down the road and yep, or pumps more death benefit. Yep. It just keeps priming that engine so that when you're ready to start bringing it into production mode, that thing's going to hum along and we're going to talk about why that is. Okay. So I think that's a really good, I think that's a good transition into 
our next point, which is the mechanics of the setup. Now that sounds really boring. Um, anytime we talk about mechanics, Rod, but I'm <laughs> trusting that you're going to make this a little bit more interesting. So let's talk about the setup um, and try not to use the word mechanics anymore. Okay. I'll, I'll try to avoid it. No guarantees, but we'll see what okay. happens. Okay. Where do we start? I mean, our initial setup is the policies. We apply for life insurance, whole life and or IUL policies. So, so in again, that sense, it looks just like any other situation where I apply for life insurance, right? So if you're if you're if you're with us and you're um, going through this process with, and we have a whole bunch of clients that are already in the process and have started to utilize it, but if you're going through that process, just know that 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 part's normal. It's just mm -hmm. it just looks the same. The difference doesn't come in until we start to bring in the financing element. So and, that's important. And that includes the way that we design the policies. We are maximum overfunding, minimizing costs, okay, that's uh, optimizing critical. the growth of the cash value in the same way as we described for the investment optimized retirement accelerator. Any of the previous conversations you've heard us talk about. So it, it feels like there's some consistency, Rod. It sounds like what you're saying is Money Insights always builds policies for the very least cost possible. In other words, we're building it for maximum benefit for the client. Yes. Always, like yes. without question. Okay. Yep. I'm glad we clarified that. Okay. So we've got a, now we have a fully optimized policy setup that could be IUL. It could be whole life, right? But mm -hmm. either way, fully optimized policy. Now what? Now we start funding. And mm, as we mentioned, all of that initial funding comes through from the individual. Yep. And when you say that, you're saying in this case, we're implying that first year's premium mm -hmm. is all going to come out of the client's pocket. So yes. Rod and I are setting up one of these. I'm going to put in the entire first premium. And I just know that going in. And, and again, the reason that we're doing it is to create the equity, right? Mm -hmm. It's what's going to allow us to continue to utilize leverage to prime the pump indefinitely if we want to. Yep. Okay. So now we've optimized the policy. We've put in the first year's premium. Looks exactly like what we're doing in the investment optimizer at this point. What's next? You you can't, like we've talked about, or you could continue to, to fund it if you wanted to out of pocket. Uh -huh. uh, for, for the reasons we talked about. Okay. Wait, why but, would we do that again? For more liquidity. More liquidity, higher or, or quicker, and, sooner, sooner income. Yep. Okay. Getting, That's probably a better word sooner. to say. It. Yep. Not necessarily higher income, but sooner income. More liquidity, sooner income. Those are, again, the reasons why the next year I might say, hey, I liked it. And maybe just to be more, even more conservative, right? Sure, like sure. maybe you just yeah. feel better about having a higher net equity. Okay. So. That part looks the same. Keep going, Rod. Then when we get to the place where we are ready to start financing any future funding, we'll set up that cash value line of credit. We'll establish a relationship with the bank, essentially, uh -huh. where the the cash value of the policy or policies are now acting as collateral. There's there's a, a link, a tie between the bank and the insurance company and, and your policies. So we have that cash value line of credit set up. And then when new funding is going into the policy, we use a special like preemptive loan to advance funding in anticipation of the cash value growing once the money gets there. Let me say that another way. The bank knows 
what's going to happen when the money gets to the to the insurance company. They're going to put it into the policy and that's going to make the cash value grow. Therefore, the, the, this collateral account gets bigger. Because they know that, they're willing to send money ahead of time in anticipation of that happening. Okay, Rod, we're on the deep dive, so we need to we need to not skip over details. You said yeah. that we establish a relationship with the bank. Mm-hmm. So I'm the client, I'm listening to this. How do I establish that relationship with the bank? Yes. Where, where so, do I go? Should I just go to my local bank and see if they'll do what you're talking about here? You certainly could do that. However, however, is, have... is there a better option? <laughs> we have relationships with many banks that okay. we're continually facilitating and and you know helping bridge yeah, that gap. Yeah, so so obviously I'm being facetious but the the important point here is that we will be facilitating this. Absolutely. Right? Yes. None, none of this is being left up for, you know, by chance. Like we have a definitive strategy and we have the resources and processes systems in place to execute on this. Okay. Yes. And and I think it's important too in in the conversations we've had with people there some people express concern about well what if what if the bank that we set this relationship with up cha- changes their mind and, and wants to do something different. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. We have we have multiple banks. So if any one bank made that decision, we just shift to another bank. So Okay, but I have a question for you Rod. And okay. we're deep diving here. We don't have this in here, but but just from a philosophical, from an economical standpoint, why would a bank be willing to do this relationship? And why do, why would we have confidence that it would make sense for them ongoingly, right? Why do we have confidence that we'll always have banks in play who will be happy to do this with us? It's the underlying asset. The same things that we like about the cash value life insurance policy, the banks like it as well. In other words, it's a cash equivalent if ever I decided that I'm done, they know there's the, the cash is there to pay off my loan. There's just no question marks. If I die, there's cash there to pay off my loan. There's no question on that either. So it it's just the asset in and of itself creates this confidence with the banks. They like it. The banks that do it love it. So well, and we never get over leveraged. So right. it's not like it's not like they're ever at risk. The bank is always in a really comfortable position. So for them, they're looking at this like a kind of like a low risk, low reward type of situation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Higher volume potentially, but they're just going to get a small spread between what they're what they're earning and what they're what they're paying out. Yeah. And for them, it ends up being a win. And we're doing, you know, in a sense, the same thing. Yes. And we've had a lot of people who have said, okay, well, what about a 2008 type of scenario? They're, they're really cr- cracking down on lines of credit out there. Well, they were cracking down on real estate. Yeah. Home equity lines value. of credit. Yep. Okay, Rodney. Well, I'm excited to hear about how we're going to change that 5% into 10. But here's the thing I love about the concept. It doesn't require huge returns. The underlying vehicle doesn't have to drive a 10 or 15 or 20% return. It just has to drive a 5% return. So yeah. what happens if it drives six or seven or eight? Well, then things get really exciting, right? Yep. So anyway, th- that's kind of the point I wanted to make, but let's talk about it. Break down the engine for us. Hey, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to let you know that you can take the F3 assessment right now over at moneyinsights.net. And after the short five minute assessment, you'll get specific recommendations 
that will help you move from high income to high net worth. Enjoy the rest of the show. Okay. Number one is, is the capital. So the money that's going into it, this includes obviously the money you're putting into it and the money that we're, that we're loaning through the bank, which is point number two, it's the leverage because kind of getting back to your point, the policy itself generating that 5% can happen by just money going into the policy. Money goes in, it creates growth based on the different pieces we talked about with whole life and, and index universal life. And, and so we, we have a very realistic expectation of what that return is going to be. 5% not only is realistic, I, I feel like it's a very conservative return to expect. Then when we add more funds than I'm putting into it, in other words, my return is calculated off of what I put in. When we now add the additional leverage to it, my return is still calculated off of what I put in, even though there's a lot more money, other people's money going into the plan. That's the leverage. Okay, Rod. So maybe bring us into like a, a an example of what that looks like in the real estate world. Okay. So let's just say someone has a, a property worth a million dollars. And when they went to buy that, they put up 25%. Let's say it's $250,000 they put up and they financed the other 750. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know this is a recent example that's going to help me uh, in my with rank the numbers really easy. Let's say the policy, the, the pop property doubled in value over the last five years. Mm, okay, and that in most cases happens. that might be far fetched, but in this recent craziness, it's it's exactly what happened. So now the property is worth two million dollars. Here's the good news: my two fifty that I put in. I saw a million dollar growth on that. In other words, I don't have to participate or, or uh, share. I don't the have gains to have a million bank. dollars of cash in it <laughs> right. to get that other million. Yep, yep. So and I quite really literally quadrupled my value, my equity in the in that example, because of the two fifty I put in is now worth one point two five. Assuming I still owe roughly a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar loan, it's, that's actually going to be a little bit lower as well. But, but the point is that leverage just allows me to create a much larger return than I could have, like you said, if I had put up the full million. I would have been happy with doubling my money, but if instead of doubling it, I could have quadrupled it, eh, you know. Okay, so here's different. the really cool part though, Rod. We're the ones that are determining the leverage spread. We're the ones continuing to pump it in. It doesn't yeah. matter whether the mark, like we are absolutely going to continue to push that um, leverage number upward, regardless of kind of market conditions. So, okay, Rod, so the primary four components of the engine then, and then we'll get into kind of the historical spread and case study are the money, the capital, the leverage, just the amount of money coming from an outside source, uh, in this case, the bank, time value of money and compound interest. And then finally that ongoing spread, the arbitrage, the amount that we can earn in comparison to what we have to pay. And of course the, the structure, the concept is more and more effective, the larger the spread is. So yes, with that said, Rod, why don't we talk a little bit about what people would have seen historically uh, and, you know, and based on what we're seeing today um, and get into some case study stuff. That's a great, great uh, lead in because 
we're taking this concept of earning more inside the policy versus what we're accruing in the loan, and we're spreading that over a long period of time. In any one or two or five year time frame, it could look very different. You take the last five years, market's been doing Ooh, really well. Would have been awesome. Interest rates right? have been very low. Spreads were very high. Yep. Right. However, when we would run projections, we didn't assume that that was what was going to happen moving forward. That's a bad idea. Let's not. Then do you that. take where we are right now. Interest rates are going up, and eventually, that that rise in interest rates will mean that we can create more growth inside of the policies. But we're not there yet. It it, it takes time for the insurance companies to realize a higher return with the higher interest rates and then turn that into on the whole life side, a higher dividend on the IUL side, a higher cap or, or participation. I have seen some increasing caps, Rod. I've already yep. seen emails coming out about caps increasing. So as the interest rates move up, uh, certainly we're going to be seeing the same type of thing happening, uh, especially inside the IUL. Whole life is going to be a little bit more of a lag. The nice thing about an IUL, Rod, is that they can be uh, more flexible. Okay, Rod, so we talked about kind of the, the four primary components that make up the engine of the capital avalanche. Let's get into what someone could have expected from a historical standpoint, just to, just to create some context for not just what's happening today, uh, but also what's happened in the past and, and what we can hope to see in the future. Sure. Our baseline spread, in other words, again, the, the amount that we're earning inside the policy versus what we're accruing, accruing of interest on the loan, we assume about a 2% spread. Why? Why do we assume that? Because over long periods of time, that's not only realistic, it's actually really conservative, I think. However, yeah, we do you... have historical precedent that suggested that that we can get that 2% spread consistently. Again, if it's over a long period of time, it may not happen in a single year yeah, um, or a couple year time frame. But when we take it over 15 years, we feel really good about that. Yeah. And that's a great point. So for example, let's take the last five years. Spreads were amazing. Market was doing well. Loans, interest rates were really low, even though they had risen, you know, up, I think in like 2018 is, is where they capped out and then they started falling. And then obviously in 2020, they dropped you know, to the floor again. So spreads have been amazing. Yeah. But it's we, been a fantastic time to be in the premium finance world. Really the last decade has been amazing, right? But yep. we don't expect that going forward. And we don't, we don't use that in our projections. We don't just assume, Hey, this is great. We're going to always continue to, to have this. Some people, as we've had conversations, have just assumed, oh, well, that that's that's what we're counting on. Well, no, we're not counting on that at all. Uh, but by the way, if we were counting on that, the returns that we would be showing would be astronomical. Oh, yeah. Right. Absolutely. They'd be 30, 40. What, like, it would just be ridiculous. Yep. Here, we're going to show something that's much more conservative and we believe uh, realistic. Yeah, Absolutely. Because we take the opposite side of that, where we are right now in time, where the interest rates have been going up uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Fed raised the rate by three quarter percent, largest jump since 1994 or something. And people look at that and say, OK, well, great. Now now your your uh, strategy is doomed. Well, no, right. <laughs> it's not because we plan on that. 
we know there will be times when our spread is smaller. There'll be times when the spread is bigger, when we spread that over a long period of time and use a, a realistic, in this case, the 2% spread, then, then it's okay. We don't have to worry about the, well, what's happening in the micro because we can look at it at the macro level and have confidence that we're going to be able to produce that double digit return regardless, right? Historically speaking, with all the back testing, we can see that it works when you take it over that long period of time. Okay, Rod, can we talk about life insurance returns for just a second? Yeah, please do. So life insurance, cash value life insurance specifically, is designed to outperform general interest rates. If you think about it, nobody would put their money with a life insurance company with the cash in, in the cash value if they didn't believe it was going to outperform what they were getting at their in the bank. Yeah, right. That's fair. So, so I think the purpose in me suggesting that is that we can go forward with a lot of confidence, knowing that life insurance companies are continue are going to continue to make sure that they're outperforming general interest rates. Because if they're not, nobody's going to put money in their products. That's what they're designed to do. Specifically in the whole life side. Now, when we go to the IUL side, the product, the construction of the product is built and designed to outperform the market. And the same concept applies here. Nobody would put their money there if they didn't believe that it would have the ability to consistently outperform, you know, general interest rates. So I just think that's an important point as we're thinking about historical spreads. Like a lot of this is the, obviously it's all about the arbitrage, but when we're thinking about interest rates going up um, and interest rates going down and what that can mean from the product standpoint, over a long period of time, even though we suspect there will be times where the the arbitrage is inversed, mm -hmm. the the majority of the time we're going to have a strong spread, and we're utilizing the combination of both those factors to determine what our projections look like. Absolutely, and we'll get into more detail on that specifically, like when we get into the, the stress testing and kind of the risk side of it. But I think it's critical and and really important to understand that. So yeah, thanks for jumping through that. Okay, Rodney, now that I'm done with my monologue, hopefully it was clear as mud. Let's go into uh, a case study example. Okay. The case study we're going to use is based off of an example we showed in the webinar. So if you haven't seen the webinar, go to moneyinsights.net, go to our education center and check out the Capital Avalanche webinar there. In that we showed what it looks like if somebody puts a $500,000 one-time contribution up front, finances all future premiums, starts to take income in year 10. What I want to do here is take a snapshot inside of that case study in specifically in year 15. By doing that, my hope is to illustrate the engine and what it's doing, how it's creating all of this value inside and, of and the And this is the important. We started using this concept um, when we were teaching the retirement accelerator mm -hmm. using the snapshot because it really is the crux of the concept. If you can understand how this component's working, usually it creates a little bit of clarity. It's like, oh, like the light goes on and I can understand exactly what's happening. Yes, exactly. So with the snapshot, we're going to take three values at that moment in time. In year 15 of this case study, the total cash value inside of the policies is $10 million. Okay. So that, okay, year 15, we've pumped a good amount of cash into this thing. We've got a $10 million total cash value. Yes. Our loan balance at that point in time is $8.8 .8 million. 
which so. means do the math. And, and that puts us at a net cash value or a net equity position at that moment in time of 1.2 million. Okay. That's our snapshot. Now what we want to do is say, okay, well, let's assume, make certain assumptions about what happens in year 15 inside of the policies. Okay. And just to, to put the math, make the math really easy. What I said was, let's assume that we earn a 7% growth rate inside of our accounts. Okay, totally reasonable okay. and realistic based on, so that's on the, where that's things the are even today. Return between whether we're using a combination of whole life or whole life and index universal life, that's the the projection on what we're expecting. Or not expecting, that's the projected in this single snapshot on what that policy actually earned. Yes. And if it earns seven percent, we're calculating that return not on just our 1.2 million of net equity. That 7% is earned on the full cash value of $10 million. So we actually earned a $700,000 in that, in that year based on that 7%. Good so okay. far? $700,000 earned, pretty simple. Okay. Now, in, we're also uh, accruing interest inside of our loan. We have the $8.8 8 million loan. And just to, to kind of force it at that 2% spread, okay, we're going to say the interest rate is 5%. Okay. Assuming Which that, is important. Then... We're not we're not suggesting it's like a two or three percent, right? It obviously interest rates are going up, um, yeah. but still interest rates aren't that high. The point here has less to do with the interest rates and more to do with the concept of the spread. Exactly. So in that case, five percent interest on the eight point eight million four hundred forty thousand dollars of interest that we accrued in that year. We earned seven hundred thousand of interest in the policies, we accrued five four hundred forty thousand dollars of interest in the loan, which means that our we earned growth- 2%, right? Uh, we, we created a 2% spread. <laughs> okay. That You're was trying tricky. to catch me, aren't you? Okay. So yeah. we did, we did a little bit better from a actual return standpoint. How Absolutely. did we do on a, in our actual return then on a 2% spread? Yeah. So the first, I'm going to take the difference between those two, the 700 earned the 440 accrued interest. So that means our net equity grew by $260,000. Okay. When you, when you take the original 1.2 million as our starting point and you increase that by 260,000, that actually represents a growth rate of 21.6% mm. in that year. Mm. That's crazy, by the way. It That's didn't have the, to do a lot. It didn't have to, it, right. it didn't have to, we didn't have to get a 10% return and we didn't have to get a four or 5% spread. We had to get a 2% spread in order to generate a 21 0.6% growth rate in the cash. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. Or another way to say that is a 7% interest growth in that year on the total cash value resulted in a 21% growth rate on our actual net equity. Which of course is three times. Three times. Return. That's the leverage. Yep. Okay. Rod, that's helpful. Again, the snapshot is just to reiterate it, we have 10 million of cash value. We have a loan balance of 8.8 million, which means we have a net cash value of 1.2 million. Okay. So now we come into it and in the policy in that singular year, year 15, we earned 7%, which equaled $700,000 of interest earned. We have a loan outstanding because obviously the, the money has been pumped into the policy from the bank. And now we're saying, okay, what do we have to pay on that bank loan? We're using 5%, which equals 
440,000, which means that the 700,000 minus the 440 gave us a growth in terms of actual dollars and cents of 260,000, which equal 21.6% net return. Yep. Okay. Okay. And we don't expect that to happen every year, right? right. But here's the good news. It doesn't need to. It doesn't yep. need to, right? The market is generally up every about seven of seven or eight out of every 10 years. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what we're doing to prepare for and plan in situations where uh, maybe it doesn't do as well as we hope. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's a good, I think that's a good transition into the two primary risks that exist. So we don't want to ever suggest that even though we really believe in the economics, the philosophy and the math behind the strategy, we're never going to suggest that there's no risk. So next we're going to talk about what those primary two risks are, and then we're going to talk about what we do to mitigate them. But Rod, maybe to start off, hit on what are the primary two risks? So the two primary risks are interest rate risk. We're seeing that right now. That's It's live and well. It in, is alive in and 2022, well. In 2022, interest rates are going up. Can okay. I just tell you though, Rod, I, there's a part of me that kind of likes that it's happening. And I know this sounds sounds crazy, like specifically in terms of our strategy. Mm -hmm. I like it because I think it helps deliver the the correct narrative that this isn't a strategy for, to, for the times. It's a strategy that we expect to stand the test of time. Yeah. And so we still have every bit of confidence doing it, even as interest rates are rising, knowing that the math and the philosophy, like, again, the core of it is good. The core of it works. So I know it, it's kind of weird because we'd probably like have more people lined up at the door if interest rates were like they were two years ago mm -hmm. and we rolled it out at that point. Um, but the nice thing is, is that I think gives people a chance to like take a step back and say, okay, like interest rates are looking different than they were. How does this thing really work? Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, it, it's kind of like a, it's a, a catch 22, but in some ways I really appreciate and like it. Okay. So we have two primary risks, Rod. The first one, interest rate risk. Talk a little yep. bit about why interest rate risk is a concern for us. And I want to be really clear about what this risk is, because the risk is actually a rapid rise in interest rates. Mm, okay. so the, the kind of normal ebb and flow of, of interest rates where, you know, the Fed may raise it a quarter percent, even what, what they were on track for, a quarter percent per quarter for a year. Meh. But yes, interest rates are going up, but that's not materially changing what we're doing here. In other words, a, a, a kind of slower rise in interest rates allows the insurance companies to be more responsive. In other words, they're, they're, they're realizing higher returns, translating that into higher uh, growth inside of the policies. So we don't, we may see a, a slightly, uh, slightly reduced spread for a short period of time. But the real risk is a rapid rise in interest rates. If they're going up really fast, a percent a quarter for a year or something like that, right? Uh, or, you know, even recently, this, this three quarter percent jump that we saw, and they're saying they're going to keep in increasing it. So, right, what we're doing, what we're in right now could fit into this category where interest rates are rising so fast, we see the impact on the loan rate uh, without or, or with a lag before the insurance companies are able to respond with, with higher returns in, in their own 
uh, investments that, that then translates into the higher dividend and or higher caps. Therefore, we can turn into negative arbitrage. In other words, we're accruing more interest in our loan than the growth that we're creating inside of our policies. That's the risk. Yep, and and it's the risk and the expectation. So absolutely, we're planning let's on that. Emphasize happening. the fact that yep. we're we're not suggesting that this doesn't happen. We're saying, in fact, that it does happen and will happen, and we're experiencing some of that today. And again, the other thing is like we are seeing, especially in the IUL side, we're seeing some relatively adaptive movement from the mm-hmm. insurance companies to make um, to make sure that they can keep up with it and and yeah, whole life. The dividends are just going to take, they're going to be a couple years behind. Yes. Um, okay. So the first thing is interest rates, Rod. And obviously, um, rapid interest rate change has the biggest impact, yeah. but uh, but it can be both, right? It can be whether it's long-term or short-term, we need to be in a position where we can, uh, where we've built a plan that's ready and prepared to weather the storm of either of those. Absolutely. Okay. The second risk Rod then is, has more to do with the market. And let's talk a little bit about when market volatility is a real challenge for us. And, and, you know, maybe when it's more of a positive. Yeah. And this relates specifically to the index universal life. Obviously the whole life is not directly linked to the stock market in any way. So this risk is specifically related to what's happening in the IUL. In normal volatility cycles, even like a 2008, you wouldn't call that normal, but because it dropped so precipitously and then over the next several years grew, that actually works really well inside of an IUL because we didn't participate in the losses, but we get a reset at that low level going into that next year. And so we participate in much of the, the gains of the recovery. So that kind of situation actually works in our favor. What we're talking about in, as it relates to kind of this real risk is if we had a prolonged down market and we go back to the Great Depression for this, because you had basically four years in a row where the market was dropping uh, over a 10 year period, it was basically seven out of 10 years where the market was down. That obviously is very different. If year after year we're experiencing this where we're not earning interest in our IUL, but we're still incurring the cost of the policy and we're, we have interest uh, that we're accruing on our loan, then that obviously, again, creates this position where we're at a negative arbitrage. We're l- losing ground. We're accruing more interest on the loan than what we can keep up with in the growth of the policy. So the question then, Rod, is if we end up in a situation like the Great Depression, right? Should we just avoid it at all costs? Here's the, the irony about saying that is just that from an investment standpoint, you almost just feel like if you're coming into a great depression situation, you just avoid everything at all costs. Right. But, but the reality is, is we have to continue to be proactive and use our money in the most effective ways. Um, So here we're going to talk a little bit about, um, what we're doing in these situations where where we have long extended down market timeframes like the Great Depression. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's talk about the risk mitigation and get into what we're doing from a design perspective to handle the heat, Rod. Yes, yes, that's the most important thing because we'll, we'll talk here in a minute about things we can do midstream to, to help mitigate. But the biggest thing we're doing is in the design, in, in the setup. We're building it 
at the front to work, like to work yes. through good and bad time. So even if we have a situation where the Great Depression comes into play and we have five, six, seven years of down market, which would be hard on any vehicle, mm -hmm. we still have a way to continue to make the strategy work and be successful. Yes. Like, like okay, I said earlier, we have to just weather the about. storm. Like, how, how are we going to weather that storm? So the first thing we're doing is we're stress testing uh, the design. Okay. Have, stress have stressed That have, sounds kind of obvious, but like, what does stress testing mean? Yeah, it, it, you would think it's obvious and you would think that everybody out there who, who does anything with premium finance would does just stress testing, but they scary. don't surprisingly. If, if you're ever like, if you're listening to this and you are ever approached with, with any premium finance design, insist on seeing what it looks like in the worst of times, the great depression, 1980s type of interest rates. Because if, if you can't see what's happening there, then you don't know if, how it's going to perform in those kind of worst case scenarios. Yeah. And it's hard to go in those situations with confidence, right? Yep. Because if you don't stress test it, um, then the, your ability to mitigate those risks on midstream become more difficult. Mm -hmm. However, if the design is right on the front end, it's built with, you know, again, there's a few things here, right? There's the, there's the policy design, the way that the agent builds it, where they're, ha where we need to make sure it's max cash, minimum cost, but there's mm -hmm. also the insurance company's design. And we have to bring those both together and make sure that the way that the insurance company designs it and the way that we design it are strong enough to weather that so that we can come out on the other side with a successful strategy that we still feel good about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. So, and, and we kind of hit on this when we talked about the interest rates, a rise in interest rates. Yes. It impacts the loan rate, which, which is the, our concern. Mm -hmm. It also allows the, the policies to grow in a better way. It's that lag because there's that lag. That's the thing that creates this, this potential or, or really, you know, uh, real situations where, where we have this negative arbitrage for a short period of time. But because we then are able to earn more in the policy, maybe I'll put it this way. Sometimes when we look at a projection and someone says, okay, well, what interest rate did you assume? Then Often the next question is, well, is that realistic to assume that's always what it's going to be? And my answer is always, no, I know that's not what it's going to be, but that's okay because it's about, all about the spread. Whether I'm showing a 3% interest rate versus a 5% growth rate in the policy or a 10% interest rate versus a 12% growth rate in the policy, the point is that historically speaking, the policies consistently outperform, like you said earlier, the, the general interest rates by a spread and 2% is a very realistic and conservative number to use for that. Yeah, because uh, we've done testing historically that suggests that in those blocks of 15-year timeframes that we've been able to outperform it consistently when we look at kind of how the past has played out. Yep. Okay, so risk mitigation, Rod, we talked about stress testing. Um, talk about... Well, and, and I think we've talked about kind of the lag on the policy and mm -hmm. how that how that comes into play, both on the whole life side where it takes a little longer, the IUL side's a little bit more adaptive. Why don't you talk a little bit about this concept of loan fluidity? Yes. We we've emphasized this kind of throughout this conversation that 
when we set up the initial policy, how it gets funded is very flexible in terms of am I putting it in versus am I uh, financing it? How long do I put in? Uh, in in this idea of mitigating these kind of risk, uh, this risk mitigation, I can forego taking a loan. I can forego taking additional uh, loans to fund a policy when I'm right in the middle of the of the kind of stressful situation. Right? So I'm basically taking a break from the leverage if I yeah. want to, yep. or I'm instead of at least I'm not adding to the leverage in Correct. that moment. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, on the on the whole life policy, we actually have the ability. Like right now, we're using what's called a direct recognition company, and uh, in, in just a really quick synopsis of that, basically what that means is the interest rate that I'm paying on the loan. If I have the loan with the insurance company, the interest rate I'm paying on the loan directly dictates how much interest I'm earning on the portion of the cash value that's acting as collateral for that loan. So we can take advantage of that. We could actually switch from using the bank loan over to using the, the policy loan. And by doing that alone, we would increase the amount of interest that we're earning on the cash value while we allow the dividend to respond, right? That lag after a couple of years, it's going to rise. And, and then we can be at a place where we just go back and, and use the bank loan. But for that short period of time, because of that direct recognition, I can actually earn more interest in my policy by using the policy loan than I can if I continue to use the, the bank loan. Yeah. So, so Rod, you, like you said, we can forego taking a loan at all mm -hmm. in, in difficult situations. And then we could also go from just bring the loan back into the policy. And by doing that, obviously we're not paying the, the negative spread. Mm -hmm. um, and then talk a little bit about this, the other option, which is just to pay interest out of pocket during that time frame. Yeah. Someone could choose to do that again, the design, we feel like the design itself weathers the storm, but if someone looks at that and they see, Oh, but this negative arbitrage means that my net equity is getting smaller. I don't like that. I would, I would rather put money towards maybe paying some of the interest on the loan, for example, to keep that from happening. That's obviously an, an option as well. We're not suggesting people have to do that or, or should, but I can see situations where, where someone might choose to do that. Yeah. And, and we have clients who are conservative, like who just don't want to even get to a place where they're pushing that at all. Yep. Um, we design them initially so that they're not pushing that envelope. But we also realized that if we ended up in one of these stress tested situations, that it starts to push it a little bit further. And so it would be perfectly reasonable for someone to say, hey, I'd rather just put a little bit of cash in this to keep it healthy while things are tough. And then they could stop making those contributions um, when it recovered. Yeah. So it's a really simple, easy way to make sure that the design, uh, that the stress, I shouldn't say that, to make sure that the strategy works long-term, even if it, the the market conditions aren't as ideal as we're hoping for. Yep. Yep, exactly. Okay, Rod, finally, talk a little bit about this idea of strategy design. Uh, we've talked about policy structure. That obviously works in our favor because we've minimized the costs upfront. In other words, even in these situations where we, on the IUL is a good example, we didn't earn interest, but we have some costs accruing in, inside of the policy. Well, we've kept those at a minimum. So we're, again, we're preemptively uh, mitigating that one. Uh, the second one is the buffer. And I think this one may be a really critical piece 
it, basically what, when we talk about our net equity, the amount of uh, the value that the cash value is, is larger than what our loan balance is at any given time. And we've talked about it in terms of that creates liquidity, right? We can access that kind of like we would an emergency fund. We want to pay it back as quickly as possible. We can access it. It also serves as a buffer. And what I mean by that is it's a cushion when, uh, when we do have these challenging times that come, we know that we have some room to, to maneuver. So we have a negative arbitrage where our net equity is going down, but we have built in the ability to absorb that, to weather the storm, to get to a place where, where market conditions improve. And, and then we'll, we can expand that again. And uh, especially for people who are, who are able to go and watch the webinar, take a look at even after we start taking income out, notice that that, that net equity column continues to get bigger. We're continuing to take loans like we talked about. The loan balance is getting bigger. The cash value is getting bigger. As that happens, we need a larger buffer. And so, like I said, even in this situation where we have started taking the income, we still drive that, that buffer bigger because we don't know what the future holds. We need, to, we need to be planning for and be prepared for those tough times when they come. Okay, so policy structure, creating the buffer, and then finally, it's built it as a long-term design. Just talk yep. a little bit about it. Yeah, and this goes back to just what we talked about. It's the the micro, you know, stressful times were built to to take on take those things on and and you know move past them, and then you get to a place where the market market conditions improve, right? The '80s, the the challenging times of the '80s, was followed by the '90s. In, interest rates had fallen, the market did really well. Spreads would have been amazing in the '90s. If if you weather the storm. The, the recovery, the improvement, right, all the different kind of impacts of, of once you get past that hump uh, work in your favor and, and then, you know, helps us create that balance. And it's the same thing when you look at the, you know, from 2010 to 2022, I guess, right? We've just, yeah. the, the amount of return inside the strategy has been just incredible. So if there was difficult times, and really, I don't know that you would say that I mean, we, I guess we had some tough times with 2002 and 2008, but yeah. even during that time frame, there was only like three or four down market years, right? Yeah. So it's not like the strategy would have been doing um, bad originally, but then you get into 2000, you know, post 2008, post 2010, and it just kind of explodes, yep. right? So the point here is just that you're suggesting we are going to have times where it, the, the concept is going to be like humming along at its best. We're going to have times where it's not. And our design has to be prepared and is prepared to weather the storms regardless. Yep, absolutely. Okay, Rod, my brain is fried. So <laughs> uh, let's talk about really quick, talk about the mechanics of the benefits. There's that word again. Talk about how people utilize their benefits. Yeah. And then uh, let's get the heck out of here. Okay. So checkbook access and liquidity is number one. Uh, it's a line of credit. If you need to access those funds, you just tap into the line of credit. You take that loan. And as we've mentioned, we, we basically treat it like an emergency fund. In other words, if I tap in my emergency fund, I'm going to replenish it as quickly as possible. Similar idea here. I tap into line of credit to use those funds. And then I just pay some back towards the loan to, to replenish that. Can I just say this, Rod? That's a, a little bit of a risk mitigation strategy that we choose to use as well. 
right? So theoretically, you could you could take the the net equity money, borrow from it, and push that limit longer term if you wanted to, but yeah. it could put stress stress on the plan and the design. That's yep. why we say the liquidity is there, but we're using it not like not like the investment optimizer where we're we're taking it out and investing. We want it to be more conservative than that. And that's why we're saying if you use that money, just put it back relatively quickly. Right. Yeah. If it takes a few months, if it takes six months, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But having it out for years at a time will create more stress that we just don't want to have on it. A smaller buffer, right? Smaller buffer. That cushion. Absolutely. Okay. okay. So the check the liquidity. The next one, Rod, is is income. And this one actually looks the same because again, it's a line of credit. That line of credit is is creating that that access that we have. When I get to a point where I want to start taking income, I'll I'll take it as a loan against that line of credit. And now in this case, we're further into the plan. Again, like I mentioned earlier, even while I'm taking income, we can still allow that buffer to get bigger. I'm not planning to put this money back. This is money I'm taking and using, spending as part of my retirement or whatever. Yeah, and, and I think this is important, Rod. So we're taking it from the line of credit. We're not taking it from the policy, right? Right. And so just differentiating and understanding that I think is important. Now we've built up this massive line of credit. And again, the reason we're not building it from the policy, we have the cash in the policy, yep. but the value proposition for us is better by taking it, by utilizing the cash value line of credit. Just yes. like we, just like people are doing right now with the investment optimizer, use a lot, utilizing the cash value line of credit has given it the advantage of a lower interest rate. Yep. Yep. Okay, Rod, finally, what's the last way that you can take advantage of the benefits? Uh, it's the death benefit. If I'm the policy, if I'm the insured on the policy, when I pass away, there's this large death benefit that pays out. It will pay off my loan. That's built into it. There's a, like I mentioned earlier, there's a direct link between the bank and the insurance company. They know if I die, the bank, the bank finds out, okay, great. They get a check, pays off the loan. But there's more, and that goes to my my family, my heirs, my estate, uh, charity, wherever I want that to go. That pays out in the form of of a death benefit, and death benefits, as we know, pay out income tax free. So there's no you know tax burden on that. The um, it doesn't go through probate, etc., because it's all de defined by beneficiary. So again, regardless of the purpose that I wanted behind that, whether it's just a legacy to my kids and grandkids whether it's uh, estate planning, creating this liquidity we talked about earlier in, in an estate planning sense, uh, that, that death benefit pays out at the end. And, and of course, it could just be there to protect people that you love and care about, right? So yes, absolutely. all of these great reasons. Okay, Rod, I am, that's been, this has been fun, but yeah. also exhausting. So yes. I'm ready to wrap it up. Is there anything else on your mind that you want to hit on before we call it? That's it. I think we were pretty thorough. That's it. Okay, that sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for today's episode of the Money Insights Podcast. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights Podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves.
Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode. and adapt to the economic condition a lot more quickly.